This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Ali Parker, welcome to Better Reading. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Ali is a Japanese-Australian author and screenwriter with a background in script editing and script coordinating. She co-wrote episodes of crime drama series Jack Irish, which I love, a romantic thriller series The Secret Bridesmaid's Business, and mystery telemovie series Miss Fisher's Modern Murdered Mysteries. This is her debut historical fiction novel, At the Foot of the Cherry Tree. It's a novelisation of the true story of Australia's first Japanese war bride and Ali's grandmother, spanning seven years, two countries and reeling from the aftermath of war. I mean, it's really very beautiful and heart-wrenching as well. So talk to me about what made you write long form and to write this story in particular. In terms of moving out of screenwriting or in into screenwriting? Writing the book. It's such an interesting story because basically this story was always something that I wanted to tell ever since I was a, a child. I remember having a core memory when I was about 11 years old that I was going to tell this story, uh, but I knew I wasn't ready to do it. So I spent a really long time refining my craft and learning as much about writing as I possibly could. I moved into screenplays because screenplays are easier to write than a novel in terms of it's 100 pages instead of 350. And so then I spent quite a few years working in different script departments of different television shows and then COVID hit and I lost all of my work in, in TV and I had no idea what to do. And there was this little voice in the back of my brain that just went, you're always complaining you don't have time to write. <laughs> So I had actually written an early draft of this story as a screenplay and I had a little bit of interest in it, but just from the early conversations I was having with producers during the start of COVID, I had a hunch that it was going to be a difficult sell. It's an expensive story. It's historical fiction. It's period. It's There's a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, so, yeah. and we're moving around the world a lot. And we're yeah. moving around the world, you know. So it's... um. There's a lot of different moving parts in the story. And so in the back of my mind, even while I was working on the screenplay, part of me was thinking, well, maybe actually the best way to approach this is to write it as a novel, sell the novel, and then get the novel option for the screen and do it that way. Mm. And that's essentially what happened. I had a, a production company pass on it because no one was taking on anything new during COVID because no one knew what was going to happen. And I just went, okay, let's do it. Let's just write this as a as a manuscript because my manuscript has, like it costs as much to publish my manuscript as it does to publish, you know, Leanne Moriarty or Genevieve Novak or whoever else, you know, the, the cost of, apart from print run, but in terms of the actual 
getting it to that point, it's the same amount of money. So I adapted the screenplay uh, into the novel and I wrote the novel in about six months. Mm. And then within four months of that, I had an agent and within five months of completing the novel, I'd, I'd sold it to HarperCollins. I want to go back to why this story appealed to you. Go right back when you knew when you were young that you were going to tell this story one day. Tell me the story and tell me why. I'd always been interested in stories. I was a huge reader as a kid. Like I I think I was only ever allowed to do the MS Readathon once because people underestimated how many books I could read in a week. And <laughs> no one wanted to be up for they're like two dollars a book. And then at the end of the week they were, you know, up yeah. for twenty, twenty-five dollars. And they're like, wait, hang on. And this is, you know, in the nineties when there was, you know, twenty-five bucks was a lot more money than it is now. And I loved libraries. I love being surrounded by stories. I I just read everything all the time. And there was actually a book published about my grandparents in the 60s called Alien Blossom. And it's, if you look at it now, it's, you'd probably, we'd probably consider it narrative nonfiction. It was written by a journalist. Um, so it's mostly factual, but with some fiction in it. Although if you ask my family, a lot of it's fictionalized. Um, and, and memory is unreliable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and that's something that I've had to deal with quite a lot in this book is that mm. truth is different for everyone and truth mm. is kind of relative and the way that I've chosen to tell this story. But I remember reading Alien Blossom when I was 11 and I got to the end. I just have this such a vivid memory of sitting on my bed, reading the last couple of lines, shutting the book and going, that's not my grandparents. That's not my grandparents at all. I can do this story way better at 11. And I think, yeah, it's it's such a, a gift of a story for any kind of storyteller. And so to have this sitting in the back of my head for basically my entire life, you know, because I, we all knew, obviously, my, my grandmother is Japanese, so she's not white Australian. And so we knew that she was the first war bride, but it took me a long time to kind of realise the significance of what that actually meant and it wasn't until I started properly researching this book that I kind of really dug into all of that and explored that properly, I think. Mm. And so your grandmother was around and very present in your life at that time. Talk to me about her as a person. I mean, she's still around. She's oh, 94. Lovely. She turned 94 in March. She's an amazing woman. I have such deep affection for her and I, I'm... She has a lot of grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> she had she had eight children and then they all had children. And I'm kind of like, we've got a last six of grandchildren before they start to become great grandchildren. And I'm like the last, the, the sixth last grandchild. So by the time it kind of got to me, she could have been very fatigued and exhausted of spending time with her offspring. Uh, but I only have beautiful memories of of spending time with grandma and grandpa at their house. They lived around the corner from where we lived. And so we'd spend a lot of time with them and they would babysit us. And I remember sitting in their house, watching TV on a massive television screen. I remember grandma teaching me how to count to 10 in Japanese and teaching me origami. She taught me how to fold paper cranes and things like that as well. And, just, and how was her English well, at the time? It's, it's interesting because I think her English is great, <laughs> but I also grew up with her and how she talks. So I, I understand her perfectly because I've understood yeah. her my whole life. But for other people, they find that she has quite a thick accent. But she never likes to be the centre of attention, so she doesn't speak a lot anyway. She kind of lets other people speak for her. 
But when, you know, I, I watch old home videos and things like that, like one of my great uncles loved video cameras. And so anytime he would visit, he would be filming everything. And I'm so grateful to him for that because it's so special to go back and watch, you know, just little snapshots of what our life was like back in the 90s when, you know, when, when I can't remember it because I'm three in the video, but it's just beautiful watching and watching her speak and the way that she interacts with everyone. Like it's just, it's love. It's just love, mm. which is so beautiful. Mm, that's gorgeous. And what about your grandfather? Tell us a little bit about him. My grandfather is was an incredible, incredible man. I I feel like I spent less time with him, even though I always spent time with them both together. But he was always so community minded. Like he was always very much about giving. And he came from a family that was very much about giving and and supporting people when they needed support. And I think that's something that a lot of his children have carried through. And I think so too have the children's children. But he was, he would tell you if he didn't approve of what you were, of what you were doing. And, you know, he didn't mince words in the same way that I don't think any of his family ever did. Um, but he got it done. Like he just would put his head down and he'd just get it done. If he said he was going to do something, it would happen and he would find a way to make it happen. And I think that kind of strength and fortitude is why he was able to do what he did and, you know, to fight the government for four and a half years to mm. change their immigration policies is huge, especially when you're 23 years old. Absolutely. And part of me thinks that that 23-year-old mindset kind of helped him in a way. Mm. So tell me a little bit about that and, and their relationship, how they met. So Gordon and Sherry met in Japan on Gordon's very first day in Kure in the south of Japan when he was serving for the occupying forces. And he was 18 years old and she mm. was 16 and they met in his room and she was terrified. He was the first Western soldier she'd ever seen up close and she believed all of the war propaganda she'd been told about the Western soldiers. And he had never seen a Japanese person before either, so he didn't really know what to do with this frightened young girl who was standing in front of him but they became friends and they fell in love and he decided that this was the woman that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with and then when he was told no he paused and figured out ways to try and get around it but you know they met when yeah they were 18 and 16 and then by the time they changed the law they were 23 and and 21 so you know babies still Mm, (laughs) I look back on it now and I think about what I was doing at 21 and 23 and I was just like there's no way I could have taken on a government to Mm. get the love of my life into the country you know that's so incredible that they were able Mm. to do that Mm. And so when you decided to write it, I, and you know, even talking about the screenplay, did you sit down with her? Did you start, how did you go about collecting information, correcting information? You know, would you read it and then check the facts? It's such an interesting story of, of how I put everything together because I knew that there's, there were different elements of truth. So there was what actually it was what actually happened. It was grandpa's truth, Gordon's truth, Cherry's truth, grandma's truth, but then also the truth of what was in the media, the truth of what was in research, the truth that I read in books from other, all of that sort of stuff. You know, uh, there's quite an extensive 
archive on my family in the National Archive. So I got access to that. So the truth of the government, the government records, and then blending them all together to tell a cohesive story from a narrative point of view. I knew that there would have to be decisions that I made to complement the story, to make the story function, because often life doesn't follow a satisfying narrative in the way that a novel needs to or a story needs to. So I I had had conversations with my grandfather before he passed, although when I was quite young, so I didn't necessarily have detail. But also my grandparents didn't talk about their time mm. in Japan very often at all. Once they got mm. to Australia, it was very much like Japan kind of never existed and this was how things had always been. And so I did sit down with my grandmother and spoke to her, but I also spoke to my aunts and uncles and some of my older cousins who had spent a lot of time with with grandma when they were growing up. There was one cousin in particular who was really interested in our Japanese ancestry and wanted to know all of the culture and all of the different Japanese holidays that we could celebrate and gaining access to them even in a small way through grandma. And then what I had to do really was let go of my preconceived notions of what I thought the story was and let the story be what this version of the story was going to be. Because ultimately that's what it is. This is my version of what they went through. Mm. And there are different levels of, of you know, because I found articles, I found an interview with my great-grandfather mm. in 1950 and he's basically telling the press to leave him alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, that's brilliant. I love that. And so that's a, a scene in the book where he basically mm. tells the, the press to stop asking questions and stop calling because he feels stop it's too dangerous. Them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was a real moment that I had no idea about until I did a deep dive on Trove on the newspaper mm. archives and basically went through a period of about a decade <laughs> looking for anything with Gordon Parker in it or mm. Cherry Parker in it. And yeah, I found these little moments, which I never would have known about without, mm. you know, the incredible resource that is Trove and, and being able to dive into those archives because my great-grandfather passed away very shortly after grandma arrived in the country. So that's a story that I never probably would have had access to any other way. So it became about them facilitating the story that's in the book as opposed mm. to what I thought was the truth or, you know, different kind of levels of things that contradicted because, as you say, you know, memory does change and adapt and alter with time so mm. it's it so a very unreliable process mm. did you go back and forward with her to check with cherry to check grandma to check facts to check to say oh like you know I'll read you this bit what do you think did you I didn't, do that I didn't do that no, no because in the few times that I did speak to her I got the sense that she wasn't super comfortable with rehashing mm. memories mm-hmm. and I actually had incredible resources in archive of radio interviews that my grandparents had done through the the 70s and the 80s and newspaper articles and actually there was a book published in Japan in the 80s about the family as well and so it's in Japanese but I had a a copy of that Mm. which I managed to pass through and ultimately I feel like she had already told me her version of the story Mm. and so that was what I was facilitating her version and she I didn't need to check because mm. it for her it always sort of goes one way often I would ask her different questions then she would give me the same answer mm. so it was like she's told her version of the story and that's mm. the version that I'm working with 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. My parents were immigrants to, um, mm. to the country. They came from Lebanon. And something I observed, and they didn't like to talk about the past either, I think what happens with migration, particularly with immigrants that have had to leave their country for one reason or another, they have this commitment to a new life and to live that new life, whether they wanted it, whether it was a free choice or not, they have to put the past away in a way or they have to forget about the past or not keep revisiting the past. And I think that that's a common thread through a lot of migrant stories. I think so too, and particularly for Cherry because they got so much media attention. They got mm. a lot a lot of attention, and so she knew that she would be targeted for her Japanese-ness, mm. and all she wanted to be was an Australian wife, mm. and so she squashed as much of her Japanese-ness as possible. Like it was a very intense assimilation for them mm. as a family, and I think part of it was because they couldn't change the colour of the skin or their hair colour or their eye colour. They All the kids look Japanese. And so I think it was just we have to be behave as Australian as possible to fit in here because that's the only part of us that we can actually change. And so there was this really intense assimilation process where the Japanese-ness sort of got squashed to become very, very small. But, you know, there was amazing ways that, Again, my my grandfather's community mindedness. He used football, Australian rules, to help his sons kind of become part of the fabric of the community that they were in. And it basically started junior football in the region where they lived, which is incredible. Mm. Uh, and that came about because he wanted his sons to feel comfortable, and he wanted mm. his sons to be seen as part of the community and not different and not other. Mm. It is really, it, it's tough. Talk to me about how she dealt with the media interests, how she responded to all that publicity that their relationship was getting. She was quite distant from it because most of it was Australian press. There was a small bit of Japanese press, but they weren't as interested in it. Mm. So for a long time, it was mostly my grandfather and my grandfather's family who were kind of fielding all the press inquiries. And if you go back through Trove, you can see like, uh, my great-grandmother, Ven, she would often do uh, interviews with the Argus, which was the big newspaper in Melbourne at the time, talking about how all she wanted was her family be to be together on Christmas and interviews mm. with my grandfather talking about how much he missed his wife and children and how, how they were in 
incredible danger in Japan and, and things like that. It's really interesting to see. And then when they arrive in Australia, all the focus becomes about Cherry. And most of it is actually just about, A, how beautiful she is, which is true, but also such a weird thing to focus mm. on. But I suppose that's also the media for you. Mm. I think we still do it. <laughs> I think we do too. But also the strangest questions, like so mm. unintentionally racially motivated, like how are you going to go because you can't get fish here? And it's just like rice is really yeah. difficult to get. What will you eat in Australia? It's just like, well, Australia has food. <laughs> um but she was incredibly gracious. You know, she just kept talking about how excited she was to be in Australia. And I, I read an article about how at the house that they moved into with, with Gordon's parents, there was a new, for the time, washing machine where you didn't have to actually hand wash. Mm. And it was her commenting on how amazed she was by this incredible machine that she'd never experienced or seen before in Japan. And, and it's like such a strange strange thing to talk about but I suppose that was that was it yeah. it was almost like a little promotional thing but I don't I don't think it was sponsored or anything but it was just you know the the differences between that and I've seen quite a few comments from her saying that you know she's she had no plans to ever go back to Japan she would be happy to stay in Australia for the rest mm -hmm. of her life and I mean she didn't go back to Japan for about 25 years after she arrived so it was a, a long time mm, that must have been so hard for her Yes, I think yeah. so. And I think she doesn't talk about how hard it was, actually. I think she likes to pretend like things were a lot easier than they were, especially now that it's so distant. It's actually today, at the day of recording, it's actually exactly 71 years today. They arrived on the oh, state wow. 71 years ago yeah. uh, when they arrived in Melbourne. So mm. it's a very fortuitous day. Mm. Mm. So then you, you've decided to take you know, this mammoth task on. Firstly, why didn't you write it as a memoir? Why did you choose to write it as fiction rather than nonfiction? Yeah, let's start with that. I'm a storyteller. I'm not a documentary filmmaker. Uh, and it was always the intention for this to start as a screenplay, um, whether it gets back onto the screen at some point. Who knows? We'll see. Mm. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm. But I always marvel at the ability of fiction to move people and actually to spark change and to spark an emotional connection in, in a reader. And I didn't feel like there was enough fact for me to accurately write a memoir or a biography. And I didn't want to speak for people who could no longer speak for themselves, whether they passed on or whether they were ill or, or whatever. And I wanted, well, they just didn't want to. Yeah. Well, they just didn't want to, which is exactly mm. their right. And, you know, there's a lot of characters in this book who are real, but there's also a lot of people who have been fictionalised, which allows me more scope in the story to play with subplots, to introduce characters who my grandparents may not have known at the time, but they would have known someone like that, or just balancing Cherry's story with other Japanese women because I'm very aware that my grandmother had probably the best possible experience she could have had as a Japanese woman involved with an Australian soldier and a lot of other Japanese women didn't have that experience and I didn't want to take that away from the other women. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, having read the book, you'll know there's quite a strong subplot which follows the alternate scenario for a lot of women who were war brides to Australian soldiers and I didn't want to cheapen their experience by only presenting the good 
things. Mm. I didn't want to tell a sanitized version of this time because it was incredibly difficult for so many people on so many different levels. And I felt with a novel or with a fiction version, I had much more space to gain much more depth Mm. and present things in a a slightly different way uh, that allowed me to explore things further. Mm. The relationships for those that didn't work. I mean, you know, marriage is difficult enough as it is and relationships Mm. are difficult enough as it is. And then you get that added pressure of, you know, being in another country and they would have experienced so much racism and conflicts with your partner. It's it's really very, very tough. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And they couldn't get back home. That's it. I I think a lot of of Mm. the Japanese war brides who either were involved with Australian soldiers in Japan or came out to Australia post-war once all of the restrictions were lifted are some of the most incredible women I've ever ever heard stories about. Just the, the strength and fortitude that they had to do what they did to give themselves and their children a better life is just... Mm. incredible and you know two completely all cultures are different without a doubt but Japanese and Australian culture miles apart yes yeah it's yeah. not like you've got two western cultures clashing it's that's right they're, they're very different and they're very robust like they they stand on their own terms mm. and so yeah there's not a lot that you could sneakily find in Australian culture that's actually a bit Japanese it's, it's mm. very minimal so yeah, it would be, it would be like coming to a completely different world for my grandmother, and likewise for my grandfather when he went to Japan. Like it was so different to what he was expecting. Mm. I love the country, by the way. I visited for the first time a few years ago, and I was just mesmerized. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. It's really beautiful. Did you discover things like because for you too, it's kind of like a family tree of research, isn't it? Tell me mm. about some of your discoveries and what you thought and how you felt. It was interesting to particularly the National Archives file. Yeah, That was the most interesting thing for me because in that were letters from my great-grandfather to the immigration minister at the time and then other letters that were sent from other councillors in the area on the family's behalf. There was a letter beautiful letter from my grandfather as well also begging for just just talking about how how much he wanted this and and how loved and supported cherry would be if the rules were to change and then the attitudes of the people in government at the time was also really interesting there's there's a few letters in there in the file as well which are from just members of the general public because Mm. once they started getting media attention the immigration office started getting inundated with letters of support. And there's a couple which are incredible. They had no connection to the family at all. They just read about the, the story in the newspaper and they'd written because they felt so moved by it. Well, we all love a love story, don't we? We do. We do. <laughs> yeah. But then the comments from the secretary are really snarky. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about, well, do you know, do they even remember what happened, happened to the prisoners of war? Which is a valid remark but it's just like would they actually be okay with these if they had Japanese people come and live as their next door neighbors like you know it's just such such an interesting kind of so the bias was so obvious Mm. but you forget as well that 
it it was just it was much more normalized then than it is now and I, I mean Australia still definitely has a problem with race I'm not minimizing from that at all but it's it's just it's a different kind of racism now I think in Australia mm. in modern day than it was back then when it was so much more blatant mm. well particularly with the Japanese too I mean definitely yes. blatant yeah, I mean, a lot of soldiers came back just hating the Japanese as well. You know, of course, of course. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that I always like to say and like to remember is that everyone in war commits war crimes. It just depends on whether you win or lose as to whether they're an actual oh, yeah. crime or not. Yeah. And I think that's you know, there's some incredible stories that aren't in the book about the time during the occupation and what a lot of the Australian soldiers did to the Japanese that kind of got swept under the rug or just ignored because it didn't mm. matter because the Australian, you know, they were part of the Allies and so they were the victors, which is not to detract from what the Japanese did at all because they too behaved abhorrently during the war. So mm. it's war is a time of violence and I don't think anyone comes out of it looking good. Well, and then particularly the civilians because all they want is peace, you know, usually. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So writing long form to you, did you do a writing course on writing fiction or did you during COVID um, decide, I, I think I'm going to work this out, I can transition a screenplay to a novel? Talk to me I'd, about that process. I'd done a few. I, I'd written prose as a, as a kid, and I'd done what I like to call collaborative creative writing online as as a kid as well. So I feel like I started in prose, and then I pivoted into screen, and now I've pivoted back to prose. And one of the things that I was really conscious of is that the style of how you write screenplays and the style of how you write prose is so different. And I wasn't sure if I could remember how to do it. So I did a few uh, creative writing courses uh, to varying effect because the, the problem that I found because I had really solid foundation in character and structure and plot from screenwriting, I didn't need the basics. Mm. I needed something more elevated, but then I also needed some of the basics, just not mm. all of the basics because prose, obviously there are different yep. ways that you can construct story and grammar and punctuation and all that sort of stuff. So I, I did do a few uh, courses, which did help me keep me on track. But I would say that like the majority of my writing has just come through reading and just assimilating the reading and, and taking different styles of prose and different authors' voices and kind of mixing them and coming up with my own and, you know, transferring that over to from screenplays as well. Mm. I think the best thing you can do as, as a writer is to read. I think mm. that's your superpower as a writer. Mm. Mm, I agree. So I just want to know um, how you felt when firstly you got an agent and secondly you got a book deal because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not. And I'm very aware that I've had a very fortunate run of it, but it's it's funny. I was working on a, a TV series at the time and I think there was a period of about a week where I would get an email and I would open the email and have a big reaction at my desk and the girl working just near me would be like, what's happened with your book now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, getting an agent was in incredible because it's always good to have someone in your corner, especially when it's a new world to you and you, you're not familiar with the ins and outs of how it all works. Oh, and they're really good at, at putting the book in front of the most appropriate person, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then to get a deal with, with HarperCollins who if I had made a, a vision board for the project, 
HarperCollins would have easily been on that vision board. And so to have had them show interest, to have them instinctively understand the story and what I was trying to do with it was just incredible. And the whole process with HarperCollins was amazing because I I felt so supported in my vision. And when I work in screen, I'm often facilitating other people's vision. And so to realize that I was the decision maker in this instance was such an odd moment, but so empowering. And I I kind of had to adjust my thinking a little bit because I realized I had been waiting for people to give me permission. And actually I just needed to go and do it, which was a really incredible moment. But I feel so blessed to have been working with the team at HarperCollins. It's just been an incredible ride. Congratulations. We're out of time, Ali. Um, It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. You too. Thank you so much, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.